Chapter One of Hunter Patrol. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Phil Chenevere. Hunter Patrol by H. Beam Piper and John McGuire. Chapter One. At the crest of the ridge, Benson stopped for an instant, glancing first at his wristwatch and then back over his shoulder. It was 0539. The barrage was due in eleven minutes, at the spot where he was now standing. Behind, on the long northeast slope, he could see the columns of black oil smoke rising from what had been the pan-Soviet advanced supply dump. There was a great deal of firing going on back there. He wondered if the commies had managed to corner a few of his men, after the patrol had accomplished its mission and scattered, or if a couple of communist units were shooting each other up in mutual mistaken identity. The result would be about the same in either case. Reserve units would be disorganized, and some men would have been pulled back from the front line. His dozen-odd UN regulars and Turkish partisans had done their best to simulate a paratroop attack in force. At least his job was done now to execute that classic infantry maneuver described as let's get the hell out of here this was his last patrol before rotation home he didn't want anything unfortunate to happen there was a little ravine to the left the stream which had cut it in the steep southern slope of the ridge would be dry at this time of year and he could make better time and find protection in it from any chance shots when the introductory barrage started. He hurried toward it, and followed it down to the valley that would lead toward the front, the thinly held section of the Communist lines, and the UN lines beyond, where fresh troops were waiting to jump from their holes and begin the attack. There was something wrong about this ravine, though. At first it was only a vague presentiment, growing stronger as he followed the dry gully down to the valley below. Something he had smelled or heard or seen without conscious recognition. Then, in the dry sand, where the ravine debouched into the valley, he saw faint tank tracks, only one pair. There was something wrong about the vines that mantled one side of the ravine, too. An instant later he was diving to the right, breaking his fall with the butt of his auto-carbine, rolling rapidly toward the cover of a rock, and as he did so, the thinking part of his mind recognized what was wrong. The tank tracks had ended against the vine-grown side of the ravine. What he had smelled had been lubricating oil and petrol, and the leaves on some of the vines hung upside down. Almost at once, from behind the vines, a tank's machine-guns snarled at him, clipping the place where he had been standing, then shifting to rage against the sheltering rock. With a sudden motor roar the muzzle of a long tank-gun pushed out through the vines, and then the low body of a tank with a red star on the turret came rumbling out of the camouflaged bay. The machine-guns kept him pinned behind the rock. The tank swerved ever so slightly, so that its wide left tread was aimed directly at him, then picked up speed. "'Aren't even going to waste a shell on me,' he thought. Futilely he let go a clip from his carbine, trying to hit one of the vision slits, then rolled to one side, dropped out the clip, slapped in another. 
There was a shimmering blue mist around him. If he only hadn't used his last grenade back there at the supply dump. The strange blue mist became a flickering radiance that ran through all the colors of the spectrum and became an utter, impenetrable blackness. There were voices in the blackness, and a softness under him, but under his back, when he had been lying on his stomach, as though he were now on a comfortable bed. They got me alive, he thought. Now comes the brainwashing. He cracked one eye open imperceptibly. Lights, white and glaring, from a ceiling far above, walls as white as the lights. Without moving his head, he opened both eyes and shifted them from right to left. Vaguely he could see people, and behind them, machines so simply designed that their functions were unguessable. He sat up and looked around groggily. The people, their costumes, definitely not pan-Soviet uniforms, and the room and its machines told him nothing. The hardness under his right hip was a welcome surprise. They hadn't taken his pistol from him. Feigning even more puzzlement and weakness, he clutched his knees with his elbows and leaned his head forward on them, trying to collect his thoughts. "'We shall have to give up, Gregory,' a voice trembled with disappointment. "'Why, Anthony?' The new voice was deeper, more aggressive. "'Look, another typical reaction.' Retreat to the fetus. Footsteps approached. Another voice. Discouragement heavily weighing each syllable. You're right. He's like all the others. We'll have to send him back. And look for no more? The voice he recognized as Anthony faltered between question and statement. A babble of voices, in dispute then, clearly. The voice Benson had come to label as Gregory cut in. I will never give up. He raised his head. There was something in the timbre of that voice reminding him of his own feelings in the dark days when the U.N. had everywhere been reeling back under the pan-Soviet hammer-blows. "'Anthony!' Gregory's voice again. Benson saw the speaker, short, stocky, gray-haired, stubborn lines about the mouth, the face of a man chasing an elusive but not uncapturable dream. "'That means nothing!' A tall man, too lean for the tunic-like garment he wore, was shaking his head. Deliberately trying to remember his college course in psychology, he forced himself to accept and to assess what he saw as reality. He was on a small table, like an operating table. The whole place looked like a medical lab or clinic. He was still in uniform. His boots had soiled the white sheets with the dust of Armenia. He had all his equipment, including his pistol and combat knife. His carbine was gone, however. He could feel the weight of his helmet on his head. The room still rocked and swayed a little, but the faces of the people were coming into focus. He counted them, saying each number to himself. One, two, three, four, five men, one woman. He swung his feet over the edge of the table being careful that it would be between him and the others when he rose, and began inching his right hand toward his right hip, using his left hand on his brow to misdirect attention. I would classify his actions as arising from conscious effort at corticothalmic integration, the woman said, like an archaeologist who has just found a K-ration tin at the bottom of a Neolithic kitchen midden. She had the peculiarly young old look of the spinster teachers with whom Benson had worked before going to the war. 
I want to believe it, but I'm afraid to. Another man, for whom Benson had no name association, said. He was portly, gray-haired, arrogant-faced. He wore a short black jacket with a jeweled zipper-pull and striped trousers. Benson cleared his throat. <clears throat> just who are you people? he inquired, and just where am I? Anthony grabbed Gregory's hand and pumped it frantically. I've dreamed of the day when I could say this, he cried. Congratulations, Gregory. That touched off another bedlam of joy this time instead of despair. Benson hid his amusement at the facility with which all of them were discovering in one another the courage, vision, and stamina of true patriots and pioneers. He let it go on for a few moments, hoping to glean some cue. Finally he interrupted. "'I believe I asked a couple of questions,' he said, using the voice he reserved for sergeants and second lieutenants. "'I hate to break up this mutual admiration session, but I would appreciate some answers.' This isn't anything like the situation I last remember. He remembers, Gregory exclaimed. That confirms your first derivation by symbolic logic, and it strengthens the validity of the second. The school-teacherish woman began jabbering excitedly. She ran through about a paragraph of what was pure gobbledygook to Benson, before the man with the arrogant face and the jeweled zipper-pull broke in on her. Save that for later, Paula, he barked. I'd be very much interested in your theories about why memories are unimpaired when you time-jump forward and lost when you reverse the process. But let's stick to the business. We have what we wanted. Now let's use what we have. I never liked the way you make your money, a dark, cadaverous man said. But when you talk, it makes sense. Let's get on with it. Benson used the brief silence which followed to study the six. With the exception of the two who had just spoken, there was the indefinable mark of the fanatic upon all of them. People fanatical about different things, united for different reasons in a single purpose. It reminded him sharply of some teacher's committee about to beard a school board with an unpopular and expensive recommendation. Anthony, the oldest of the lot, in a knee-length tunic, turned to Gregory. "'I believe you had better,' he began. "'As to who we are, we'll explain that, partially, later. As for your question, where am I, that will have to be rephrased. If you ask, when and where am I, I can furnish a rational answer. In the temporal dimension, you are fifty years futureward of the day of your death.' Spatially you are about eight thousand miles from the place of your death, in what is now the world capital, St. Louis. Nothing in the answer made sense but the name of the city. Benson chuckled. <laughs> what happened? The Cardinals conquer the world. I knew they had a good team, but I didn't think it was that good. End of chapter 1